0: Welcome to the Open Bible Podcast, a resource of Church of the Open Bible in Swiftcurrent, Saskatchewan. In today's episode, we are going to air the Creation Ministries International Workshop that took place here in November, which clearly lays out the doctrine of man and what the Bible has to say about this, which is the next chapter in Charles Ryrie's Basic Theology. So we hope you enjoy, and if you would rather watch a presentation, there is a video in link in the description below. Hello, church and guests. This is Pastor Jay Hines welcoming you to another episode of the Open Bible Podcast. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. On today's episode, we move to section seven in Charles Ryrie's book, Basic Theology, which covers the doctrine of man or anthropology and begins with two chapters on evolution and origins and the Bible and origins. Now, a few weeks ago, we had a guest speaker here at Church of the Open Bible, Richard Fangrad from Creation Ministries International, and he did a stellar job unpacking these very things. And so we thought it would be helpful to use his first talk for this episode. It's a little longer than usual, but well worth the time. So here it is.
1: Kind of the title of this morning's session is, It's a Great Time to Be a Christian. It, it is. Some of you might be thinking, what are you talking about? It's a terrible time to be a Christian. You know, and, and we can understand that perspective as well, right? We see things in society going against what we would understand to be biblical values and so on. And, and, uh, but it is a great time to be a Christian. It's always been a great time to be a Christian. One of the reasons it's a great time to be a Christian today is because there's a massive amount of support for our faith. Our faith is not a blind faith. It's reasonable to be a Christian. It's logical to be a Christian. It makes sense to be a Christian. It's good to be a Christian. And there's support that we have for what the biblical text says today that our parents and grandparents never had. And, this, and, and I'll share some of that with you here this morning. But our overall topic here is creation evolution. So let's start there. That is often seen as, and I'm sure you've seen it portrayed this way, it's a battle between science and religion right? Isn't that the way it's often portrayed? You, you, you Christians, you're, you're on about uh, your creation, that's, that's, uh, that's a, a belief, it's about God and warm fuzzy feelings and so on, but evolution, well that's about science and facts and we've got scientists and that kind of thing. Is, is that an accurate way of understanding what it's really all about? Is it really science versus religion? Well, no. But let's, let's, let's define our terms. What do we mean by science? What do we mean by religion? If we were to try to come up with a definition of science here this morning, there isn't one single definition of science. Some people, for example, they say science is what scientists do. There's a definition of science. What are you doing? I'm doing science. It's what scientists do. But everybody would, would agree that science has to do with things like observations and repeatability. You go into the field. You make various observations in the physical world, in, in the living world, and so on. Uh, in, in, in a lab, you can do an experiment and get the same result over and over again. Science involves those kinds of things, whereas faith is beliefs about things that cannot be observed. So there is a difference between science and faith, but is it fair to characterize creation evolution as a battle between science and faith? Like, if, if we wanted a definition of faith, where might we go for a definition of faith? Hebrews, yes, several people said it. Hebrews 11, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things, there it is, not seen, it's about things that we don't see. There's a a good biblical definition of faith, there's different kinds of faith, but there's a good definition of one kind of faith. So with with those those sort of working definitions of science and faith, let's compare then the creation and evolution issue. Start with creation. Has anyone alive today observed God creating? No, right? Some of you are old, but you're not that old. (laughs) Is it repeatable? Do we see God repeatedly creating the universe over and over again? Well, no, of course not. Is it a belief about the past? It is, isn't it? It comes, comes from the Bible. So creation properly fits the definition of religion. Not observable, not repeatable. That would be science. It's a belief about things that we haven't seen. That's, that's faith, that's if, if, if people at work or at school come up to you and they say, well you're, you're a Christian, you just believe creation by faith, that's just a religious idea. You could say, yep, <laughs> no argument there. What about evolution? Has anyone observed, for example, ape-like creatures evolving into people over millions of years? No, no definitely nobody's that old. Could you repeat a process like that over millions of years? No, way too long. Is it a belief about the past? Well, it is, isn't it? So evolution also fits the definition of religion. So just a- as we get started here this morning and trying to understand this, it's not science versus religion. It's, what it is is it's one belief about the past versus a different belief about the past. That's what the whole creation-evolution issue boils down to. It's not really about the science, it's about the history. Two histories are duking it out. That's where the debate happens. And, and again, not science versus religion. So what, what can you say then? Creation-evolution are very similar. The first point we can make is, they're both beliefs about history. I mean we have a belief about history. Uh, I'm going to assume most of us are Christians here this morning, maybe not everybody, that's okay. But Christians have a belief about history come from the Bible and other people have a different belief about history. And again, that's that's where the battle happens. No my history's right. No my history's right. And that's where the te- where the tension takes place. And if we let's let's just summarize those two histories quickly. Get a little little uh, familiar with them, or a reminder anyway, start with the evolutionary history. That starts about 13.7, 13.8 billion years ago with a Big Bang, cosmic evolution. You, you've all heard of the Big Bang, right? The Big Bang goes something like this. First there was nothing, and then it exploded. <laughs> I'm, I'm serious. The physicists that write on the Big Bang, some of them anyways today, Lawrence Krauss and some of these other popular level guys, that's exactly what they're saying. There was absolutely nothing, no time, no space, no matter. And then through some quantum fluctuation, big fancy terms, you have this huge amount of energy. And that energy converts into matter, hydrogen, maybe some helium as well. And so now you've got space and you've got hydrogen gas. And then millions of years later, some of that gas starts to compress to form solid objects like dust at first. And then pebbles, and then asteroids, and then stars, and then planets, and and all kinds of things. And about 4.6 billion years ago, our own planet and our own solar system begins to form from a spiraling, collapsing dust cloud, and you get a hot, molten Earth. That's geological evolution. Molten rocks initially forming in the early stages of the Earth, about 4.6 billion years ago. And it takes millions of years for the Earth to cool down, to finally get water on the earth. And then in a warm little pond millions of years ago, lifeless chemicals came together to form the first living cell. That's chemical evolution, or abiogenesis. And that first living cell goes on to develop into all the life we see today. That's biological evolution. That's what most people think of when you say evolution, right? It's, it's that stage in that history. And the final step in that history, humans from an ape-like ancestor. That's one version of history, it's a very popular version of history. It's, uh, it's not just textbooks and teachers, it's in movies, it's in popular entertainment. It's, uh, it's all over the place. There's another version of history. God creates, one, two, three, four, five, six. And then at the end of that, here's a, here's a key event in the history of the universe. God describes his initial creation as very good. Initially the creation was very good. And we can line these things up in a bit of a sequence, a little timeline there. Is the creation very good today? No. <laughs> um, we we see a remnant of that very good world, like the beautiful sunset we uh, sunset sunrise we just saw this morning, uh, and and there's some amazing flower that's that's intricately designed, or or some animal might do some cool thing or whatever. We, we see some kind of remnants of a very good world, but there's also very bad things, right? There's, there's both natural evil and moral evil. Moral evil is evil people doing evil things. And as sinners, we all contribute to that, unfortunately. And then there's natural evil. Earthquakes, tsunamis, floods, like in southern BC. Uh, diseases like cancer, COVID, and that kind of thing. So what happened to God's very good world? Well, this happened. Adam sinned. And that made Apple computers. Or No, Adam sinned, and that, that the key event in the history of the universe to understand the world around us. God created a world that was very good and sin messed it up. As a result of sin, God cursed his creation. So now there's death and suffering and disease and all those kinds of things because of sin. And then we can, we can think of some more events in, in, in that history. Uh, we get to uh, Genesis 12, Abraham, a key figure in the history of the universe. Many promises and covenants made to Abraham that we benefit from today. And then many years later, we get to the central events of the whole history of the universe, the life, death, and resurrection of Christ that we'll be celebrating here in a month's time, the, the, the birth of Christ. And so there's a different history than the one we just described um, a couple minutes ago. And if we wanted to put dates on this one, like we did with the other one. The other one about 13.7, 13.8 billion years ago it started. Well, when did this one start? And you you could, if we just wanna get a ballpark figure, there's a number of different ways you can do that. One of the ways is start with Abraham and count backwards from there. Abraham was born around 2000 BC, 1900 to 2100. That's not really controversial. Uh, people who study history, that's, that's where they place Abraham. And in our Bibles, in Genesis 5 and Genesis 11, there are chrono-genealogies, genealogies with the time between each of the individuals listed there. We have the exact year from the, uh, the, the birth of Abraham Going back to the creation of Adam, 2009, 2008 years. So just count backwards, 2008 years, you get to around 4,000 BC for creation. So the earth is about 6,000 years old. And if the, this is the first time you've heard that, you're likely thinking, no it's not. Because <laughs> that's what I thought the first time I heard that. I thought, that's ridiculous. Everybody knows the earth is millions of years old. And as odd as that might sound, there have been a huge array of scientists and researchers and historians who've undertaken to do a study of how old is this Earth. i um, give you an example, Johann Kepler. You've, you've, maybe some of you heard that name. He's a famous scientist. He was the discoverer of the planetary laws of motion. And he was a Christian. He was a Bible-believing scientist people today say there's no such thing. You can't can't be a Christian and do good science. That's nonsense. Some of the greatest scientists ever were Bible-believing Christians. Most of them were creationists, and they did good science. Uh, Kepler came up with a creation date of 3993 B.C. That's pretty close to 4,000 B.C. Isaac Newton, you know that name, right? He argued that creation took place around 4,000 B.C. Isaac Newton, so if, if for those of you who think, yeah, the world's, you know, God created recently, maybe six to 10,000 years ago, you're in good company. <laughs> Big name scientists have concluded the same thing. Here's one more. The Jewish calendar. Some of you might know that the Jews don't count their years like we do, like 2021, which is, which is supposed to be based on the birth of Christ being the year zero, a little off there, but that's what it's supposed to be based on. Their year is based on creation. Does anybody know what year it is right now in the Jewish calendar? It's 5782. They've got a couple hundred years to go yet to get to 6,000. But there's yet one more sort of age calculation, date calculation, that kind of is around 6,000 years. But, um, yeah, interesting stuff there. So what else can we say about creation and evolution? Number one... They're both beliefs about history. Number two, both involve making observations, scientific observations, and fitting them into history. Now here's where the science fits in. It's, yes, at a foundational level, it's about two histories, but science does play a role. Here's how it plays a role. Scientists make observations in the world around us, and then you attempt to fit them into whatever history you believe is true. If a scientist believes the millions of years' history, obviously they're going to try and fit that into that history. And, or, or if we, we, can, we can phrase this in, in, in a question form, the question you want to ask yourself and teach your kids and grandkids to ask whenever there's some new evidence for evolution that they, they read about or they, they hear about is, which history fits best? Which history provides the best framework for understanding the observations from science? And, and some of you know that we do a, a TV show, Creation Magazine Live, and, uh, and we're writing episodes and shooting season nine for that right now. Just, just amazed that it's gone on this long. But we've done some other teaching videos. We did a series based on this question, which history fits best. And it's not a live action thing. It's like a cartoony, like an animated thing. And uh, it's a game show. And you sort of have to imagine, you know, remember the corny game shows from back in the 80s? Uh, the guys with the big hair, and it's kind of like, welcome to another exciting episode of which history fits best. And there's two contestants, a creationist and evolutionist. The evolutionist always loses and gets angry and that kind of thing. So we're having fun with that. But every episode features a scientific observation. And the contestants are asked which history fits best. So we can play a few rounds of that here this morning. Let's, we'll keep track of our progress in a little chart here little table. Let's look at some scientific observations and see which history, the biblical history or the the millions of years evolutionary history provides the best framework for understanding that. We'll do a few examples, You'll, you'll see how this works. Let's start with this. Here's the island of Madeira, about 600 kilometers off the coast of Africa there. Here's the observation. There's some beetles on this island and the beetles fly around. It's windy a lot of the time, a lot of the beetles get blown off the island into the ocean and they die, they drown. Now, there was a mutation, a genetic mutation in some of these beetles long time ago, even before the time of Charles Darwin, that caused the beetles to lose the ability to produce wings. Those beetles, the mutant beetles, then became the dominant population of beetle on the island. And that's still the situation today. It's a pretty interesting scientific observation, isn't it? Genetic mutation causes loss of wings, causes population change which history fits best? Well, evolutionists today and and going back since the time of Darwin, including Darwin himself, have basically been saying our history fits best. This is an example of evolution happening before our eyes. You Christians, how silly you are. Can't you see the evidence for evolution? It's happening right there on Madeira. Are they right? If, If I was an evolutionist, I wouldn't use that to defend evolution. Why? Because the, here, here's, here's a couple of the big differences. There's, there's many differences between those two different histories. Here's one. The, the, um, the evolutionary history, as, as I'm sure you've all heard, says that all life came from a single cell. And through onward, upward struggle and survival of the fittest, you get to things like peaches, pears, pine trees and people And the biblical history says everything was very good and is running downhill. So what's happening to the Beatles on Madeira? They're running downhill, aren't they? They used to have the ability to fly. Now they can't produce wings anymore. Which history fits best? Biblical history. Cool. I love being a Christian. Isn't that fun? It's great. And and some of you might be thinking, well, well, wait a minute, in in biology class, uh, I learned about natural selection. That sure sounds like an example of natural selection. You know what? That's a great example of natural selection. Natural selection doesn't lead to evolution. It's the wrong kind of change. That kind of change that scientists observe on Madeira takes working genetic information and makes it not work. Now in this case, the the beetles are more adapted to the windy environment, yes. You know what that is? It's good engineering by God. God engineered living things to be able to adapt to changing environments without going extinct at the slightest change in the environment. It's good engineering. But that kind of change will never evolve a single cell into a horse or a human. Wrong kind of change. And so, yes, living things change, absolutely. Let's let's do another one. Here's one of Jupiter's moons, Io. You can see Jupiter in the background there. Here's the observation. In the late 80s, a spacecraft flew around Io, mapped the entire surface of Io for the first time. And when the data came back, astronomers were were a little little surprised. Why? Because they saw 80 active volcanoes on Io. Io is supposed to be about the same age as everything else in our solar system, about 4.6 billion years old. But if it really is that old, really really, it should be old, cold, and dead. Old, cold, and dead. But it's not old, cold, and dead. It's extremely active geologically. 80 active volcanoes on this shrimpy little moon way out there in space. Which history fits best? Biblical history. The history that says Io's not 4.6 billion years old. Cool. I love being a Christian. But have, I, have I said that already? Maybe I have. But let's do another one. Dinosaurs. People think, well, dinosaurs definitely fit with evolution, not the Bible, right? Scientists have made amazing discoveries in dinosaur bones over the last 15, 20 years. uh, There's dinosaur soft tissue, many examples of it. Uh, For example, in a hadrosaur, uh, that's soft, that You're looking at, at some hadrosaur tissue under a microscope, soft and stretchy tissue in a hadrosaur. It's been found in many other species of dinosaurs as well. Blood cells and blood vessels. These ones happen to be from a T-Rex. Triceratops blood cells have been found as well. Um, different kinds of protein. Dinosaur proteins have been analyzed, including histones. That's the kind of protein associated with forming the double helical structure of DNA. And little bits of dino DNA have been discovered. Those are incredible discoveries. And, and uh, evolutionists recognize that they're, you know, maybe that's a little bit of a problem if they're supposed to have died out 65 million years ago. So they were doing some investigations and th- th- that some of the scientists wrote this, recent investigations have found such remarkable preservation to be quite common. It's not even rare. It's common to find biological structures and organic tissue in dinosaur bones. Which history fits best? <laughs> again, the evolutionists say that dinosaurs all died out about 65 million years ago. Like, obviously these ones didn't, right? This screams against the evolutionary notion that they all died out that long ago. It's Powerful support for biblical history once again. Cool. Let's do one, th- I mean, and there's many more that we could do. We could, we could go on all, all morning uh, looking at examples of this. But uh, th- there's over and over again, the Bible's history provides the superior framework for understanding the observations that come from science. If, if you really believe that dinosaurs died 65 million years ago, now you have a problem with science. Because science can prove that structures, organic tissue and stuff like that, Rots. <laughs> Take a good piece of Alberta beef and throw it out on your front lawn and, or, the, or the snow in this case. But uh, it, it rots. It doesn't, it doesn't last for any length of time. Amazing. So, what, what else can we say? So, so they both involve making observations and fitting them into history. Lack of teaching on this issue may be the cause of many people leaving the church. Let's switch gears a little bit and talk about uh, the impact of this kind of teaching that we're talking about here this morning. And the lack of it—that there's—you you may have heard, uh, maybe familiar with some of the surveys that have been done over 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 many years now of of children, mostly young people, adults as well, but mostly young people leaving the church. Uh, George Barna Barna Research Group back in 2006 did a survey. 61 percent, well over half of 20 somethings, he says, leave the church. That's what they found in their in their research, their surveys. Uh, Assemblies of God, a denomination in the States did a survey, 66% is what they found. Lifeway Research, another research group in the States, 70% they found that a percentage returned later in life, I and mean that, that's that's good news. The largest denomination in the U.S. is the Southern Baptist Church, Southern Baptist Convention. They did a survey way back in 2002. 88% way back then is what they were could you imagine that? I, I was speaking years ago at a church in Charlottetown, PEI, way, way out, east, out east there in the Maritimes, and it was a PAOC church, Pentecostal Assemblies of Canada. But these are all U.S. surveys. And after the service, the pastor said, well, we've done a survey, nationwide survey in Canada in the PAOC. You know what they found? 90%. What is going on here? Like, survey after survey, we could, like, the, the numbers border on being unbelievable, right? And, and maybe we could, we could be skeptical of them if the majority of those kinds of surveys returned results of 3% or 5% or 8% or something. Then we might think, okay, well, there's something wrong with the surveys. But the, those surveys are all returning results that are way up in the clouds, If we can't figure out, as Christian parents and grandparents and church leaders, what's causing this and and how to start to turn the ship around, we're in big trouble. And as I suggested with with that point number three there, I think there's a connection between lack of teaching in the church on this area and these survey results. Now you might think that's, that's a bit of a stretch. Let me, let me let's me let try and, I'll try to bring that together for you. Let's imagine, let's do a little thought experiment. Let's imagine maybe a three-year-old, maybe one of your kids or grandkids, uh, little Johnny or little Susie, they're three years old and they, they go to Sunday school. And, you know, if we, could, if we could look inside their lives and see what's going on spiritually at that point in their lives, we might see something like this. They love Jesus and that's all they know. And then, and then they're watching you know, cartoons and, and uh, whatever else or, or, or listening to their teachers at school and, and all of a sudden, uh, mom and dad, do dinosaurs fit into the Bible? I just learned on my kid's cartoon show that dinosaurs died millions of years before humans were ever around. So how do dinosaurs fit into the Bible? And generally, you know what we found? Offices in seven countries around the world. We've been going now, started in Australia over 40 years ago. We've sent speakers all around the world, that kind of thing. You know what we found all over the world? Generally, mom and dad and grandma and grandpa don't have a clue how dinosaurs fit into the Bible. And, well, there was an ice age, wasn't there? There's good evidence for an ice age. Where does that fit into the Bible, mom and dad? And again, Silence. And, and and well and maybe that's not a fair question. Does the Bible even talk about an ice age? Maybe, maybe not. We'll talk a little bit about that in the, in the next session here. But the Bible does talk about a global flood very prominently. Okay, Mom and Dad, where did the water come from for the flood? And, and where did the water go after the flood went away? And again, silence. And as the weeks and months go on, the questions keep flooding in and now little Johnny or little Susie isn't so little anymore. Now they're junior high and high school and college and university. And the inside of their head looks something like this. It's a mess. And the message of the cross is very difficult to see. And we lose them. I think this is, this is what's happening that leads to those survey results. See, these questions and others like them, and those, those, those are just samples, they don't get answered and they begin to feel after a little while that questions like these are just unanswerable. There aren't any answers for these questions and therefore the Bible must be wrong. And, and think about it, once you've reached that point in your thinking where, where you, you know, quote unquote, that the Bible's wrong, why would you keep coming to church? Right? If, you, if kids move out, they go to college or university and out, out from their parents' influence, are they gonna continue going to church if in the back of their minds, well, the Bible doesn't make sense. It doesn't connect to the real world. The Bible's wrong. I think there's a connection there. Now that's a depressing line of reasoning on such a beautiful Saturday morning. Let's move on. What would get youth to continue attending church? That's the answer we need to, to, that's the question we need to answer, right? You ever heard of Josh McDowell? some people yeah okay um, he was an atheist when he when he was in college quite a number of years ago now he's uh, uh, getting on as well but uh, he was an atheist and the way he tells his story is apparently there was a Bible a Christian group a Bible study group on campus that was trying to get him to come to a Bible study and so to do these Christians a favor he was going to disprove Christianity for them so that they could get on with their lives and stop meddling in this nonsense or or so he thought so he took it upon himself to attempt to disprove Christianity's central event, which is the resurrection of Christ. Big mistake, right? He discovered what, what many of you probably already know, There's loads of support that Jesus physically died and physically came back to life. And that's exactly what he discovered. And it it, it was kind of like, oh, okay, Christianity isn't just a blind faith. It's actually, it's based on real events. There's support for it. He became a Christian. Now, he's been involved in university, like campus ministry for decades, literally for decades, working with students, 20-somethings. It's it's this demographic that many surveys say are leaving the church. He's been working with with that demographic in society. He's done his own surveys. He was speaking at my brother-in-law's church in North Carolina a number of years ago. He said this. I thought it was fascinating. 63% of, he's talking about students, of the people that he's been ministering to for a long time. 63% said they would attend church if the church presented truth in a way they understood it and it was significant and meaningful for their lives." I thought, man, that kind of gives us a track to run on, doesn't it? What he's finding with, with this, again, this group of people where surveys show many of them are leaving, leaving Christianity, leaving the church, He's finding that many of them are also saying, look, if you can show me that the Bible makes sense, show me that that you you can present truth to me in in a way that's significant and meaningful to my life. I'm I'm hearing about atheism and evolution from all my atheistic professors and Marxism and that kind of thing. Show me that the Bible can defend itself and I'll stick around. The, The reason that's such good news is because it's a great time to be a Christian. And there's loads of support for what Scripture says. It's not, that it's, not the, it's not that the answers to those questions aren't there. They are there. We have a delivery problem, though, don't we? We're not getting that information, that faith-building information, to the next generation. So I think, again, point number three, I think there's a connection between lack of teaching in this area as kids grow up in the church and, uh, and those survey results. What else can we say about creation evolution? Accepting the millions of years' evolutionary history dramatically impacts the gospel. Let's talk about the gospel. This is church after all, so let's talk about the gospel. Actually, let's go back to this one for just a second. Remember we started with this? We kind of defined both of these as, as belief systems or religions, if you like, that kind of thing. Well, you wouldn't, you wouldn't combine another religion with Christianity, would you? You wouldn't combine Islam with Christianity or Buddhism with Christianity then why combine evolution in millions of years with Christianity? Because it's like another belief system. And 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 there's people people within the church who say, well, that's that's what you should do. It's not not creation versus evolution, just believe in both. You just take evolution in millions of years and you put it into Genesis there, no problem. Okay, let's try that. Let's, let's try blending these two together, and bringing in millions of years into Genesis, and rather than just focusing on creation, because obviously that's going to impact how we understand how God created, let's focus on what that does to the gospel, to the central teachings of our faith. What is the gospel? The gospel is Christ dies to pay for sin, right? And, and we could say a lot more about that, but that's the basic message of Christianity, We're all sinners. Christ died in your place to take your sin on himself so that for all those who turn to Christ, they don't need to pay for their own sins. They accept the free gift of God in Christ Jesus. That's salvation. That's a wonderful message. The message is you don't need to pay for your own sins. We're all sinners. We're all in the same boat here. Turn to Christ. It's a a great message. Now, obviously. There is a link here between sin and death. Jesus died to pay for sins. We all know this, right? He died a physical death to pay for sins. And or let, me, let me ask, let me throw this out here. Could Jesus have done something other than die to forgive our sins? Could, it's not a trick question. I see some people shaking their heads, no physical death is the requirement for sin there's verses all over the bible that make that connection between death and sin very prominent for example here in hebrews without the shedding of blood and that obviously refers to physical death there's no forgiveness of sins the whole remember the whole old testament law folks had to come to the temple and something had to shed its blood to provide a covering for their sin now we don't sacrifice animals anymore because christ's death put a stop to that but there's a, there's a connection between sin and death. It's all over the place in Scripture. So Christ dies to pay for sin. Now, that link between sin and death, where was that established, that connection? Is that a New Testament thing? Is that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? It's Genesis, isn't it? Think of the very first sin that ever was. Adam sinned, and what did God say to him? In, in, in Genesis 3.19, God tells him, Adam, I made you from dust. You're going to go back to dust. Physical death is a direct result of sin. Death was first linked to sin back in Genesis. So the gospel really begins in Genesis then, doesn't it? With the bad news. And that's how we understand how Christ's death paid for our sins. It's the, the foundation of the gospel is back there in Genesis. So if we modify Genesis, we destroy the gospel. So how? Again, remember, we're talking about by modifying genesis by adding in millions of years it destroys the gospel so how does it do that exactly well without getting more technical or theological we can answer that question by asking maybe a simpler question here's a simpler question where do the fossils fit where do the fossils fit there's fossils all over the world where in that biblical history there's a snippet of biblical history there where was the fossil record established and you'll see if we answer that question, we'll, we'll in turn answer the other one as well. Now just, just to help us wrap our heads around this a little bit, let me, let me give you a, a, a sample of some of the things that scientists have found in the fossil record. It's obviously a record of dead things, of death. It's also a record of pain, diseases, extinction, carnivorous activity. There's fossil thorns. Very interesting. Take uh, diseases for example. There's so many diseases that scientists have discovered in the fossils in the fossil record that they've coined an entire term, paleopathology. It's the study of deadly diseases in the fossil record. You know, among all of those diseases is cancer. There's there's cancer, tuberculosis, all kinds of bone diseases, terrible things. There many examples. What else? Pain. Scientists have found examples of pain in the fossil record. Here's an example of pain. This is Sue the T-Rex, one of the largest, most complete T-Rexes ever found, about 98% complete, uh, 95 to 98% complete. She's on display here at the Chicago Field Museum. Uh, We were there as a family. A number of years ago, you walk into the front lobby and you're presented with this amazing animal here uh, on display in Chicago. Sue suffered from a badly healed broken leg, three broken ribs, one of which didn't heal properly. So ouch, right? Walking around on legs that aren't healing. Guess they didn't have surgeons back then to set the bones properly. So uh, pain, its pain in the fossil record. She had fused tail vertebrae, likely due to some pretty severe arthritis. Uh, maybe, maybe some of you have, have uh, fused tail vertebrae a little little higher up, right? You, it, she had back pain, right? A little lower down than, than, than where we have it. But uh, uh, for those of you with back pain, you know what that's like, right? That's, that hurts. Infections caused a number of holes in her head. Researchers initially thought that the holes were due to attacks from other, maybe other T-Rexes, that kind of thing. Turns out it was parasites boring holes in her head. Ouch, right? <laughs> pain. The tooth of another dinosaur was embedded in one of her ribs, so she was attacked by other dinosaurs. And it's likely also true that Sue had gout. The gout alone would have caused excruciating pain if she moves the wrong way. So Sue, this this amazing animal on display here in Chicago, is a great example of pain in the fossil record. What else have scientists found? They found evidence of carnivorous activity, animals eating other animals. Here's a a fish fossilized in the process of having its lunch. (laughs) <laughs> and and there's, there's other things we can look at as well. But there's a kind of a, a summary of some of the things in the fossil record. Now let's turn our attention back to biblical history. Where do the fossils fit? And, and just to simplify things a little more, let's just zero in on that point in history where God calls his creation very good. Do, do we get any hints in Scripture as to the conditions on the earth at that time? Well, yeah, we get a, a, a few hints, not a whole lot, but the terminology very good comes from the final verse of chapter 1. There it is there. God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And in the two verses before this one, we read that there was no death at that point. Adam and Eve were commanded, eat plants. There was no, no McDonald's, no hamburgers, you know, no, 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 no bacon, no. Oh, I don't know, I struggle with that one. You know what I mean? Maybe the guys can relate. How, how can the world be very good and not have bacon? Like, it's a real mind-bender, but. <laughs> in, in the next verse, the same command is given to the animals. Herbivores. You didn't need to worry in the very good world before sin of you, your kids, your brothers and sisters being ripped up by wild animals or, or bitten by poisonous snakes or eating poisoned plants or whatever. It was a very good world. Those things didn't happen. And, and I'm sure most of you have heard the verses in scripture that refer to animal behavior in the future. You know those verses, right? What does it say? The lion will lie down with the lamb, or the, the wolf will lie down with the lamb. The lion will eat straw like an ox. So there's, there's a vegetarian lion coming in the future? It's, it's, it's a reflection of what was, in, in a sense, before sin. So there's, there's a, a few little insights as to the conditions on the earth at that time. Now let's put the two of these together. Where do the fossils fit? Well, if we go with the notion that the fossil record was laid down over millions of years, and we've all heard that, then how do we arrange these two? Like this, right? Right? 1000000s It took millions of years to lay down the fossil record, and then about 6,000 years ago, 6 to 10 if you want to stretch it out, just ballpark figures, God steps back and says, My completed creation is very good. Ah, no. (laughs) Could God call the things in the fossil record very good? Of course not. Cancer, diseases, pain, violent death, bloodshed, that, that makes no sense at all. What, what, if, and, and obviously that puts death before sin. Now well, hold on a second here. Then what do you do with all the, the verses in the Bible that connect sin to death? If death has been around for millions of years and all kinds of other terrible things, then here's a question. What did Adam's sin do? Well, if this little scenario is accurate here, we have to conclude not a whole lot. If there was millions of years of death and suffering and things violently ripping each other up and then Adam sins and we have the world right now with all of that stuff, then Adam's sin really didn't do much at all. But again, the big thing is you have death before sin. And what do you do with all the verses in the Bible like this one, for example? The wages, the penalty, the cost, the result of sin is death. But if this little timeline here, this little snippet of timeline is accurate, then that verse is wrong. Sin really has nothing to do with death. Death has been around for millions of years, if the fossil record is millions of years old. And with that comes tumbling down the central teachings of Christianity. If there's no link between sin and death, then Jesus didn't die to pay for our sins. And that's how if, if you work the logic through, I've gone very quickly here the last five minutes. If you work it through, there's other details we could add. If you add millions of years into the Bible, the millions of years comes from the rock record. The rock record has terrible things in it. You end up logically with the destruction of the gospel. But that's not true, is it? What do we need to do to fix this? If we just open up our Bibles and arrange these things biblically, we have to somehow get the fossil record after God called his creation very good. And more specifically, after that point in history where Adam sins and death enters the world, right? now, From from a biblical perspective, again, we just open up our Bibles and shift these things around biblically. That's the way it has to be. Initially, God called his creation very good. Then at this point, Adam sins. At this point, death and bad things enter God's very good world, and the fossil record records those death and bad things. Easy, right? However, this is is also not problem-free. The problem with this is, we have to conclude that the fossils must be relatively young. Oh dear, okay, now what? Because we've all been told the fossils, it, you can't even make a fossil quickly. It takes millions of years to turn bone to stone and that kind of thing. It, 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 fossil records millions of years old. That's, that's the evolutionary interpretation. Do, do we have any scientific evidence, any fossils that we know did not take millions of years? Yes, there's boatloads of them. Here's a couple more interesting ones. It's a fossil octopus and a fossil jellyfish. Those animals don't even have any bones. They're they're just, they're mostly soft and squishy material which means if they wouldn't have been rapidly buried they would have rotted (laughs) and we wouldn't have fossil octopus and fossil jellyfish, but we do. And what's interesting is scientists find fossils like this, both plants and animals, all around the world showing very little decomposition which means there must have been rapid burial all around the world beautifully preserving these things before they decompose. Hmm, okay. Can you folks think of anything that happened after Adam sinned on a global scale that might rapidly bury plants and animals? (laughs) The flood, right? Noah's flood, huge amounts of erosion and deposition, ideal conditions for fossilization. That's where the fossils fit, right? There's such a beautiful cause and effect relationship between the flood and the fossils. What's the effect? What are we left with? A worldwide fossil record showing evidence of rapidly buried, some of them beautifully preserved, plants and animals all around the world. What's the cause of that? A global flood rapidly burying plants and animals. <laughs> I love being a Christian, right? It makes so much sense. We, we have a, a global mechanism to produce the fossil record and, and... It's at the right point in history. It's after sin and death enter the world. And sure enough, those terrible things that are the result of sin are captured in the fossil record. Perfect. What more could you ask for? And yet, as as I just pointed out, the struggle that people have with this in the church is you, you, you have to get the idea out of your mind that the fossil record is millions of years old. And that's where people slam on the brakes. They say, no, we know that the world is millions of years old. And if this is something that, that some, some of you struggle with here, yes, I believe God created, but he did it over millions of years. If, if, if that's your struggle, think about what a global flood could do quickly. And we'll say more about this in the, in the session coming up here. The flood is really the key to understanding this, this controversial issue of the age of the earth. Because a global flood would accelerate all kinds of things. Erosion, deposition, mountain building, continental drift, Many of those things would be accelerated in a global flood. So it wouldn't take millions of years to produce the geology that we see. But nevertheless, people look at things like this. This is Grand Canyon. This is uh, uh, Horseshoe Bend here in Grand Canyon. And, uh, and, and people look at that and think, well, well, how could a flood do that? Didn't the river carve the canyon? That's, that's what we're told. The Colorado River carved the Grand Canyon over about a million years. And people say, well, how, you're saying a flood did that. How can a flood do that? I don't get it. Help. Okay. Are there canyon systems that we can look at today that also did not form as a result of river erosion but of something more catastrophic, like a global flood? Well, yeah. Uh, here's another canyon. This is, this is not as big as Grand Canyon, obviously. But there's a little river running, you can see a little river, maybe, running down the, little, the, the, the middle of the canyon there. And if you went to that canyon today, this is about 600 feet across and 150 feet deep, so a a sizable little canyon there. If you went to that canyon today, you might suppose that the river carved the canyon. And that's very reasonable. There's nothing wrong with that. Rivers do erode sediment out of the the valleys that they flow through and given hundreds or perhaps into the thousands of years, that stream may have carved that canyon. But in this case, it's wrong. Reasonable, but wrong. Evolutionists sometimes have reasonable sounding arguments that doesn't necessarily mean that they're right. It's reasonable to think that the river carved the canyon, but it's wrong. That canyon didn't take a thousand years, didn't take a hundred years, didn't take ten years, didn't even take one year. That canyon was carved in a day. That's a one day canyon. This is a picture from the base of Mount St. Helens in southern Washington state. Mount St. Helens is a volcano. What happened was the volcano erupted, there was ice and snow up on top of the mountain. That melted very quickly and that produced a mud flow that came through this area twice highway speed carving out that canyon. Or maybe highway speed depending on how fast you folks drive around here. But in any case it was a rapid event and then the river formed. See what's interesting as well is that the river didn't even exist before the canyon. The canyon was cut by a massive mud flow from the top of the volcano, and the reason there's a stream there today is because when it rains, the water collects in the in the in the canyon and it and it forms a stream. But the river had nothing to do with the canyon's formation. If we look at the sidewalls of this canyon here, see that layer between the yellow dotted lines? That was laid down in about three hours on June 12th, 1980, again as a result of an eruption of the volcano. What blue geologists' minds is when they had a close-up view of that layer. Here's a close-up view. Look at that fine layering. Geologists are used to thinking of those fine layers. You can see them there, just millimeters thick, as maybe one or two of them being laid down a year, two layers a year. And yet here's multiple layers in just a few inches in a sequence that was deposited in three hours. It's incredible some of the things that happen around Mount St. Helens. But Mount St. Helens, it, it was only a few mud flows from the top of a mountain. If a few mud flows can do interesting things like this, what might a global flood do? Makes you think, right? You go back to Grand Canyon, did that river carve that canyon over about a million years? Possibly. It's reasonable to think along those lines, but maybe not. I had the opportunity in the mid-90s to go whitewater rafting for, for five days down the Colorado River through Grand Canyon. We were sleeping out beside the river underneath the stars at night. It was incredible, incredible stuff. If any of you have ever been to the Grand Canyon, I'd recommend uh, rafting. Um, it, it, it's some of the biggest whitewater in the world, though, it is, they call that an, an extreme sport, right? That's an extreme sport. Um, I've, I've done some other extreme sports. I've jumped out of a perfectly good airplane eight times and, uh, and had almost 300 flights on my hang glider. Uh, but but, but that, was, that was a long time ago. I'm, I'm a good little boy now. I, I, uh, I'm married, and this was, this, this was a very long time ago. I don't do that stuff anymore. But I was rafting down the river with creation geologists and paleontologists, Ph.D. scientists, and we were studying the evidence in the canyon for rapid deposition of all the layers that you see there and rapid erosion of the canyon in, in a flood, post-flood type scenario. And guess what? The more we study Grand Canyon, the more we're coming away with the notion that that thing did not form over millions of years. There are too many clues in the canyon, in the structure of the canyon and the the rocks that point to catastrophe, that point to something much more energetic than the Colorado River. There's even a DVD at the back there rafting the Grand Canyon featuring a lot of the, the pictures I took and the rocks and fossils we looked at. Let's summarize. Biblical history is supported by natural selection, the beetles on Madeira. Madeira. Great example of natural selection. Doesn't lead to evolution, even given millions of years. Wrong kind of change. It supports biblical history. If God put all the genetic instructions into every group of living things at the beginning, it works really well. But you can't build those up. That's not what scientists find. Young planets, we looked at Io. Io's out there in space saying, I'm not 4.6 billion years old. I don't fit with that history. I fit with biblical history. Fresh, unfossilized dinosaur bones containing soft tissue. Blows my mind what scientists are finding in dinosaur bones nowadays. And that just it just screams against the evolutionary history. It doesn't fit that history. Not much of a problem for biblical history, though. Fossils around the world showing little decomposition. We looked at the, uh, what was it, the, the jellyfish and the octopus there, right? Like Jellyfish laying around on a beach. How, how long do you think that thing could last? Like a week, maybe? And then you have scavengers and all that kind of thing, and yet they're beautifully preserved in the fossil record. Rapid burial. Again, as a result of a global flood, powerful support for biblical history. Rapid rock layers and rapid canyon cutting like we saw on a, on a kind of a small scale at Mount St. Helens that, that, that helps us comprehend what may have been going on on a much bigger scale in a global flood. Uh, wonderful stuff there in support of biblical history and many more. We kind of talk about this for millions of years type of thing, but it's a great time to be a Christian. There's a massive amount of support for our faith. Now, I have zipped through some things here in the last hour very quickly, but for those of you, if, if you're a little bit interested in these kinds of topics or you can see the value of learning some of this stuff and, and building up your knowledge or, or maybe your kids or grandkids, uh, helping them, I'm going to make some recommendations here to get more information after, after we finish today. My, okay, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's accurate. We thank, you that, we thank you for science and scientists and the amazing work they do to reveal how your creation operates. And we thank you that um, your word provides the best framework for understanding the world around us. And uh, we thank you for scientists. Again, we thank you for... Uh, and and I, I pray for the folks here. I pray for those who are struggling or might have kids or grandkids who are struggling in their faith. I pray that the folks here would use some of this information for themselves, for people around them who are struggling in the Christian faith, and and through that, that many might come to know your son Jesus. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.
0: thanks again for listening in this morning to great teaching on an important subject. We trust it was helpful. Join us next week as we move along to uh, chapters 31 and 32 in Ryrie's Basic Theology, which cover the creation of man and facets of man, the biblical doctrine on those areas. Until then, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit abide with you now and forever. So long.